If you want to take up the second of your two service sheets, um, we're going to read the Bible text together. Joshua chapter 5, the entire thing. Or if you have your own Bible, look that up, Joshua chapter 5. Continuing in our series called Taking Possession through the entire book of Joshua. We're not going to take every single passage of Joshua together, uh, but we're going to certainly hit on the, the main highlights of that amazing account. So Joshua chapter 5, this is God's word. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haralot. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them all. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, died in the wilderness on the way after they'd come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way of the, uh, in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came up out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he, that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. When the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Cana that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hands. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servants? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. We've just read together, folks, Joshua chapter 5. And um, got two points, two things I want to uh, try and get home today to you from this passage. First thing I want to say, number one, is that renewal comes before possession. Renewal comes before possession. Number two, this passage teaches us that glory eclipses ambition. Glory eclipses ambition. First of all, renewal comes before possession. Um, some of you may not have uh, been with us last week, but we, we, we tackled chapters three and four 
that, that shows us that God miraculously uh, led the people through the River Jordan when the priests took up the Ark of the Covenant, stepped into the Jordan, the waters were backed up um, maybe a mile or so upstream so that the entire population of Israel, probably numbering hundreds and thousands, were able to cross over dry safely onto the other side. And that was them setting foot for the first time in the Promised Land. So that's where we find Joshua chapter 5 beginning. And if you see uh, verse 1 of our passage today, we see that the enemies of Israel are freaking out. They have just heard what has happened. Maybe some of them themselves had witnessed what had happened. Hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people crossing over on dry land. No one ever does that. And so it says in verse 1 that their hearts melted. They were terrified. And so maybe if this was you, maybe uh, rather if you were a member of Israel at that time, maybe even if you were Joshua, and, and, and you know what's going on in the hearts of, of the enemies, and, you, and you've just literally walked across the Jordan dry, you're likely to say to yourself and think to yourself, come on, let's go. Let's go and take this land right now. They're quaking in their boots. Their hearts are melting within them. Let's go, let's go. Come on, God is with us. We've, we've received the promises of God, right? He, he's told us he's going to give us this promised land. We're going to go and take possession. Let's do this. But what we see in this text in chapter 5 is that God's timing is not the same as our timing. God knows what we need better than we do. And he knew at that time Israel did not need to go straight into battle. There's something else that had to happen first. Renewal comes before possession. And so God instructs the people through Joshua to circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. I mean, seriously, is that what you want, God? You, you want us to circumcise this generation? What about, the, what about the battle? Come on, we've got momentum on our sides. Let's go and take this lot. But Joshua obeyed. He circumcised that second generation of Israel. And verses 4 and 7 in our passage tell us the reason why he did that. Um, the generation that, 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 that God brought out of Egypt, out of slavery 40 years ago, that generation had, had died in the wilderness. They had all been circumcised, but they had died. And the next generation, their sons, if you like, had been born in the wilderness and they had not yet been circumcised. What is circumcision? Circumcision is a physical sign of every male from eight days old or more would have received among the people of Israel. And it was a sign of the covenant that God made, the promise God made between him and his people. God said to his people, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he said that through Abraham, and he said that and restated it in a different way through Moses. I will be your God, you will be my people. I'm going to give myself to you, is what God said. And you give yourself back to me, and that's going to be called a covenant. And so when you are involved in that covenant relationship, I'm going to give you a sign that you are part of my people. 
And that sign is circumcision. God said to his people, I want you to demonstrate that your hearts are for me by doing this outward physical act. You cannot be my people without this outward physical sign. We can put it another way. If you do not have the physical sign in your body, then you are cut off. You are not my people. You are not a member of my covenant people. You can't say you're with me if you reject my rituals, says God, through the law. So we can now see the problem that Joshua and all of Israel are facing in Joshua chapter 5. They're about to take possession of the land, but they are not fully committed to God. They, they haven't given themselves over fully to God and his purposes. And so today, it is not circumcision that the church performs, but we do have another sign, a sign of the covenant, which is called baptism. It's the sign that shows that you have entered or you have begun your covenant relationship with God. Baptism. And it marks who is in. It shows who is a member of God's covenant people. It also is a visible physical act. You may remember when we baptised Paul back in February. That was something we could all see. It was a physical act in front of our very eyes, corresponding, pointing to an inner reality, both showing that Paul belongs to the covenant people of God and everyone else who has been baptised. But there's differences, you see, between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament. The differences, I'll give you a few just here. In the New Testament, in the church, the sign is not just for men. It's for women as well. It's for all people, men and women. It's not just restricted to men. The new covenant, you see, takes the old and broadens it and deepens it and personalizes it to each individual. Another difference might be this. It is based on a person's faith in Jesus. That's how you become a member of the new covenant community, through your faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we don't baptize babies, folks. The third and final difference I want to put before you is that it is all people who can receive the covenant sign. Men and women, yes, but not restricted to an ethnic group. You see, circumcision, by and large, was restricted to the people of Israel. And yet, all people, all nations under the sun can come into the new covenant through faith in Jesus. doesn't matter if you are from the West and you are white. doesn't matter if you're from an African country and you're black. Any other race or nation under the planet, under the sun, can and should be a part of God's covenant community not just restricted to one ethnic group. This is important, what I'm about to show you here. Verses 5 and 6 show us that all the people who came out of Egypt 40 years ago, all the people had been circumcised, right? All the men, anyway, had been circumcised. But yet, listen, they did not obey the voice of the Lord. And so it says that God swore that they would never see the promised land, the land he promised to their forefathers. And so we see in the book of Exodus that because of their rebellion, that early generation, they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years until they died. 
It was God's punishment. They're not going to inherit the new, the new land. Their children will. And this is why this is important. Listen to this. That generation, that first generation, they had the external sign, but they did not have the inner heart reality towards God. They were circumcised, they had the sign, and yet they wandered away from God. Their hearts were not fully given to him. They had the sign, but the spiritual reality was far away. And this is why it's important. Here it is. Having the sign does not guarantee that you are right with God. I want to be really, really clear here because this is something that affects every church, may affect us as a church. There are two errors that we can make as a local church when it comes to the covenant sign of baptism. They're kind of equal and opposites, and we we get that from the way God responded to the people of Israel. The first error that we can make, number one, is that you could be christened as a baby, you could be baptized as a baby, you could be baptized as an adult, you could be confirmed by a bishop, whatever it is. You could have had all of those things done, and yet that alone does not guarantee that you are right with God. Doesn't mean you're not, but just having had that thing done to you does not mean in and of itself that you are right with God. If your heart is not with God, if you do not have faith in his son, Jesus Christ, if you do not trust Jesus to save you, then baptism, confirmation, sprinkling, dunking, whatever, makes no difference. And this this is why this is so important for us to understand as a church and for you to understand as people, members of the church, mixing with other people out there. There are so many people who think that they are right with God because they have had some kind of ritual, that they have had some sort of experience, maybe as a baby or even as a young adult. But if that's all they've got, then they are living a lie. Because there are people who have no faith, they have no love for God, they have no trust in Jesus, their lives are indistinguishable from those who have no faith. They are more like the first generation that came out of Egypt. They think they're friends with God, but in reality they are enemies. They think they are good with God, but in reality they are spiritually blind. That is why it's so important to understand. But the second error, the first error is you can have the sign and not have the heart. But the second error is almost like the inverse. You can have the heart but not the sign. That is, that some people might claim to have faith in Jesus, but they haven't received, or yet worse, they they reject the signs that he gives us to demonstrate and declare to the world and to one another that we are members of his chosen people, his covenant community. There are people who say they have an inner spiritual love for Jesus, They may even trust him truly, trust God truly, and yet that has not yet been represented or outwardly expressed in humble obedience to God. Look, Israel here have seen amazing things. 
They have experienced God's deliverance of them. They, they might say, we trust God, yes. And that's all that's needed, they might say. But here we see, God commands covenant commitment. God wants his people to declare and demonstrate their love and their faithfulness towards him by receiving the sign. He will not let them go into the promised land unless they have received the sign that they belong to him. He wants all his people to receive the sign of baptism in the church. He wants all his people to be marked in their newness of life with him, the removal of shame. We see that in verse 9. No longer defined by the old way of life, but instead being defined by Jesus and what he has done for us. And that's what baptism points to. God, you see, is not content with you having the external sign only. But neither is God content with you having a heart that's given to him only. He wants both. God wants all of you. He wants your heart and your body. We are holistic beings after all, aren't we? We're not just a lump of carbon. But neither are we just some sort of embodied soul. And the body doesn't matter before God. What God really cares about is our soul. No, God wants all of you. He wants your heart in faith and he wants your body to follow in obedience. Renewal comes before possession. Are you with me? Verses 10 and 12, we're going to just briefly look at these. After they receive the covenant sign, they then enjoy the covenant meal. Passover. We touched on this a bit last week. Passover. Remembering together and celebrating God releasing them from slavery in Egypt. This is just a beautiful picture. I, lo I love the fact that they have just experienced this amazing delivery from God and they receive the covenant sign and then they set up and have the covenant meal. I love that. Before celebrating off to war, sorry, before rushing out to war, they celebrate God. They remember his faithfulness. They revel in his kindness to them. They, they think and remind themselves again of his power, of his protection over them. Look at this in verse 12. I love this. It says, And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. There's no longer any manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. You may or may not be familiar with, 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 with manna, but it was this mysterious bread-like substance that fell like dew that fed the Israelites for literally decades as they wandered through the wilderness. There was not enough food for them to take food from the land, and so God provided manna. And we've almost forgotten about it by the time we get to this stage where we're, we're thinking of waters that are parting, and amazing things that happen in Jericho later on. But this manna has been quietly, consistently falling, providing God's faithfulness, day after day, fresh every morning. But now, they're eating the fruit of the land. They get a taste of the promise. Love that. Let's just apply this to ourselves before we move on to the next, the next part. I think it's easy for us as a church 
particularly now in our sort of uh, exciting, visionary, let's you know, rush forward type phase. We, we have a vision for battles ahead. We, we, we are so aware at this sort of stage and age of ourselves as a church, just now not even 18 months old, that we have land out there to claim in the name of Jesus. There is darkness that we want to push back in the name of Jesus. Passion is good. Ambition is good. Vision is good. But this text shows us that God is greater than all of that. Renewal comes before possession. See, before we are called to do anything else, folks, at Foundation Church, we are called to covenant faithfulness. We are called to ongoing renewal of the covenants. We are called to see God. We are called to enjoy God. We are, we are called to be satisfied in God, to, to receive him with thanks through these ordinary means of grace, through the baptism, through the Lord's Supper, through the word, through prayer. And that satisfies us and it fills us. It is strengthening to us. This is, a, this is a word to me right here. I say we, I mean me, but maybe you can relate to this too. We often run around dissatisfied with church. We run around dissatisfied with our ministry. We may even run around dissatisfied with God himself. But usually that happens because we're doing just that. We are rushing on ahead. We're getting anxious, getting stressed. Instead, in the first instance, right here, God calls us to linger a little with him, to rest with him, to remember him, to celebrate him. Maybe that's what you need right now, this evening. Maybe you just need to slow down a little bit. Maybe I need to slow down a little bit. To fix our gaze back on Jesus. Maybe you need renewal. And so you're going to receive that later as you take the bread and the wine. God confirming again, preaching to you what he's done for you. Maybe it even starts before that. Maybe you need to be baptised to mark the beginning of your covenant relationship with God. Renewal comes before possession. So let's just enjoy that together as a church. Let's enjoy God together and never stop enjoying together. Second thing I want to point out to you in this text. Number two, glory eclipses ambition. Glory eclipses ambition. Look down at verse 13. This is just an amazing couple of verses here. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. The text seems to communicate that this was not 
an ordinary experience for Joshua. He was not expecting to see a warrior at this moment. And yet he looks up from whatever he was doing or wherever he happened to be, and he saw this man with a drawn sword, a man of war. And in the text there is a, a sense of ambiguity. Who is this man? Is he a friend or is he a foe? And so Joshua asks the natural question, maybe fearing for himself, maybe uncertain. He says, are you for us or for our adversaries? I love this in verse 14. The man said, no, neither. He says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And when you see the Lord written in capitals there, it's, it's, a, it's a transliteration of, of or rather, a, the Hebrew that stands behind that word is, is the name of God, Yahweh. And so traditionally, uh, devout Jewish you know, translators would have translated the word Lord out of, out of reverence for the name of Yahweh. They would not even spell it, let alone try and say it. I am the commander of the army of Yahweh. Now I have come, says this warrior. He's a human being, no doubt about that. But he's not a mere human being. He's the commander of Yahweh's armies. And so it says that Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. And he was told, take off your sandals because you're on holy ground. Some commentators assess these verses and they think this individual that Joshua is talking to is an angel of God, a heavenly warrior, a heavenly messenger. And that may well be true, but I think that the text points to someone or something even more fearsome than an angel. This text points us to the fact that Joshua is talking to God himself in human form. Where do I get that from? Well, it says, Joshua fell on his face and worshipped. You see, the people of Israel knew only too well that God and God alone is worthy of worship. Remember the first commandment? I don't know if you know the Ten Commandments. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It was drilled into the people of Israel. And so Joshua here falls on his face. He worships. He is not rebuked. Worship is accepted. Only God is worthy of worship. And that's exactly what we see Joshua doing. Also, no one ever meeting an angel in the Bible is ever told to remove their footwear. That only happens when people meet the living God. You think of Moses at the burning bush. Rings. Very familiar. So here we have God in human form. Some people call this the pre-incarnate Christ, if you want a technical term. They believe this is Jesus before he came to earth. He makes a showing every now and again. Anyway, divine presence in human form. And Joshua asks him, are you for us or for our enemies? Which one are you for? Are you, are you, are you for us or against us? As far as Joshua was concerned, anyway, there are only two options available. Joshua had this experience with God from his point of view. It's Israel versus everyone else. He's thinking in his mind of the, the Canaanite tribes. He's thinking of his mind of the, the upcoming battle with Jericho. So there's only two categories. Which one are you? And so God replies, no, neither. Neither. 
I am the commander of heaven's armies, and I have come. Imagine, just for a moment, in that snap second when it dawned on Joshua who he was talking to. He was talking to Yahweh the Lord. We've seen a few times already in the last few chapters what people think about Yahweh. In chapter 2, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. In chapter 3, he is the Lord of all the earth. In chapter 4, he is over all. He is almighty. And here he is, God in human form, stood before Joshua, holy and powerful, sword-drawn, ready for battle. And as soon as Joshua realizes what's going on, he drops to his face in humble submission. He worships because he understands that he is before God in human flesh and his response is this. Command me. What does the Lord say to his servant? I think, I think that this is so helpful for us today. So helpful. This, this provides, these few verses provide us with a desperately needed correction. Because often we, as people come to God, and we say to God, whether we're, whether we're the Christians, or whether we're just examining from the outside, or whether we have no faith at all, we come to God, and we say, are you for me or against me? Are you for me or not? Are you going to help me or what? But here in these few verses, we see that God doesn't fit into either of Joshua's criteria. And he doesn't fit into ours either. So often we come to God viewing him from our perspectives. We come with our own pressing needs and our circumstances. We come with our own philosophies or worldviews or we come with our ethics or our lifestyles and we, we ask God, are you for me or are you against me, God? Are you going to take me as you find me or are you going to be against me? Will you bless me and what I'm doing or are you going to curse me? Are you going to help me be a better version of myself or are you going to hinder me in that process? Can, can you, God, fit into my philosophy and the way I see the world or not? But we see here, when faced with these questions, God answers, no, neither. In this sense, God is neither for us nor against us. God is for himself. He is here for his own glory. God says, I have come to win this battle for myself. I have come to achieve this victory for myself. Maybe that just comes as a bit of a shock to you. Maybe this comes as a bit of a shock to you. Let me state it very clearly. God is chiefly concerned to glorify himself. God is chiefly concerned to glorify himself above all things. We saw a few weeks ago, we, we, we used one of the old catechisms, the Westminster Catechism, that starts by asking this question, what is man's chief end? And the answer 
Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We saw that. But this text tells us that the reverse is not true. God's chief end is not to glorify us and enjoy us forever. It's to glorify himself and enjoy himself forever. And that might come as a shock to you. And it should. You see, the scripture points to this truth. That God the Lord, Father, Son and Holy Spirit has been glorifying himself, enjoying himself, delighting in himself as the Trinity from eternity past. The Father delighting in the Son, the Son glorifying the Father, the Spirit praising the Father, the Spirit glorifying the Son. They have been doing that from before the universe even came to being. And you see this majestic, beautiful, unfathomably large galaxy and universe that we live in, this entire creation that we are a part of, simply displays that glory. It is an overflowing of that glory. Psalm 19 begins with these classic few, verse, few words. The heavens declare what? The glory of God. Day after day, they pour forth speech, praise. And we, we are part of that creation. We were created to experience that glory, to attest to that glory, to reflect that glory, to tell one another of that glory. And yet, we are a rebellious part of that entire creation. All have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. We have been robbing God of his glory. We have been preferring glory for ourselves in a million different ways. And rather than crushing us back to the dust that we began as, God sent his son. He sent his son in the flesh to suffer and die and be raised again so that we might be restored as glory reflecting, glory enjoying, glory penetrated people. And so we don't come to God in the final assessment and say to him, are you for me or against me? Do you see now how, how stupid that is? We don't come to God now knowing that and, and ask him, what are you going to do for me? How are you going to fit my agenda? How are you going to squeeze into my philosophy? God is on God's side. It is to us he asks the question, are you for me or for my adversary? Whose side are you on? Whose side are we on? As a church, are we for God or are we against him? God's chiefly concerned to glorify himself. But does that mean he doesn't care about us? Does that mean he doesn't care about you? 
and your life circumstances as they stand? Does that mean he doesn't care about the challenges that you face? Your battles? Your ambition for the future? Does that mean he doesn't care about what's going on inside your head? Absolutely not. We can see, and we have seen, and we will see, that God cares deeply about Israel's battles. He promised to bring them through to life and peace in the promised land. And for us, it is the same through Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But glory, eclipse, ambition. The point is this, and I hope this is starting to maybe click into gear a little bit for you. It isn't Israel's battle after all. Them going off to fight Jericho, that's not their battle. It's God's battle. It's for his glory. Look, there he is in those verses, ready for war. His sword is in his hand. Perhaps Joshua needed reminding before they embark on their next military conquest. This, all this, is about God and not about us. It's about him fighting his battles, not me fighting my battles. It's Yahweh who's doing the fighting. He's pushing back the darkness for us. He's winning. We just follow him. We obey him. We serve him. Glory, eclipse, ambition. May this all slot into place in our minds. Once we see God's ultimate plan and his purpose, his certain victory in Jesus on the cross, his certain return one day, once we see that, then our own fears begin to fade. Like the hearts of their enemies, our own fears begin to melt away. Once we see God's ultimate plan and purpose and his victory for us in Jesus, then our battles are not as large or as scary or as dominating or as costly as we were once led to believe. Once we see God's ultimate plan and purpose for us, for his glory, then we are not so anxious. Then we are not so depressed when things don't turn out the way we want it. Then we're not so troubled and stirred up in our spirits. Even our ambition, even our drive, even our hopes for good things, for kingdom things in the future will be set in their right order and will be overcome by peace and a sense of rest when you understand that God is chiefly concerned for his glory. And amazingly, he uses people like us to achieve it. Once we get this, folks, then we are freed we are free to enjoy him. We are free to reflect him. We're free to demonstrate his glory through every facet of our lives. Our work, 
our families, our, our personal spirituality, our recreation, everything to the glory of God in Christ Jesus.